Sam Johnson retired last year as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, serving the state of Texas. Before his political career, however, Sam was a fighter pilot in the Air Force, and he flew 62 combat missions in the Korean War and 25 combat missions in the Vietnam War. On his 25th mission in Vietnam, his plane was shot down. He and his co-pilot were both able to eject from the plane before it crashed, but Sam was injured, and he was taken captive by the Viet Cong. For seven years, he was held captive in a prison that has come to be known as the Hanoi Hilton. Johnson and the other prisoners of war who were held captive there were physically and mentally tortured by their enemies, the Viet Cong. And I won't go into detail about the kind of torture that was given to them because it's brutal. But when they fell into the hands of their enemies, their enemies did not treat them very well. And this is what is expected. Mankind can be very brutal to its own enemies. And so when you're in a situation like Sam Johnson was, where you're forced to surrender to the enemy because you have no other choice, then you're putting yourselves in their hands. And they can do with you whatever you want. Surrendering to enemies gives your enemies the power to treat you any way they want. Surrendering to enemies gives them the power to treat you any way they want. And Sam Johnson's story illustrates this truth. It shows how a man who was forced to surrender and was taken captive by his enemies was not treated very well by those enemies. In our passage this morning from Luke chapter 22, the very end of the chapter, we encounter Jesus as he falls into the hands of his enemies. And we've been tracking through his life. And in the last several weeks, the last several Sundays, we have walked together with Jesus through the final week of his life. After having his last supper with the disciples in the upper room, he and the disciples left that area. They left the city of Jerusalem. And they crossed the Kidron Valley and ascended what is called the Mount of Olives and went into a garden called Gethsemane. And there Judas, one of Jesus' disciples who had betrayed him, showed up with a contingent of leaders, of, of temple guards, of soldiers to take Jesus captive. And although his followers began to fight back, Jesus surrendered to the enemies that took him into custody. And in today's passage, we're going to find out what they did with Jesus. Just as prisoners of war can be mistreated badly by their enemies, we're going to find out how Jesus was treated by his enemies once they finally had him in their power. Now there's more to it than just the way Jesus the man was treated. Because as the title of this entire series through the gospel according to Luke goes, Jesus was one of us, but he was one of a kind. Jesus was a man, he was one of us, but he was one of a kind in the sense that he was God in human flesh. When Christ came into this world, God himself entered the human race, 
The second person of the Trinity became a man. And during his life on this earth, especially the three years of his ministry on this earth, God in human flesh, the man Jesus Christ, taught about God the Father and called people to repentance and welcomed them into the kingdom of God. And his message was received in various ways. Some people accepted his message and repented of their sins and became his followers while others rejected his message. And not only rejected his message, but they rejected him. He became an enemy of theirs. And his claims to be the Messiah and the miraculous powers that he showed and his prophecies about what would happen in the near and the far future all demonstrated and proved his claim that he was God in human flesh, that he was not merely a man, but that he was the Son of God in a man's body, in human flesh. And so when Jesus, the man, surrendered to these authorities who came to arrest him, when Jesus gave himself up to his enemies, the way that they treated him shows not only their feelings about Jesus, the man, but it demonstrates to us what humanity would do, what God's enemies would do, if they had the opportunity to have control over God for just a short time. Have you ever thought about that? Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, once preached a message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he described the coming judgment that God promises to those who don't believe in him. But theologian R.C. Sproul reversed the question in one of his books. And instead of talking about sinners in the hands of an angry God like Jonathan Edwards did, R.C. Sproul wrote a chapter in one of his books called God in the Hands of Angry Sinners. What would that be like if God fell into the hands of angry sinners who had control over him? What would they do to him? What would their treatment of him be like? That's what this message is going to answer. That's what this passage of Scripture is going to teach us. Surrendering to enemies gives them the power to treat, them, to treat you any way that they want. And when God was surrendered to his enemies in the person of Christ, God was mistreated. God was mistreated when he surrendered to his enemies. As we'll see here in this passage of Scripture from Luke chapter 22. God was mistreated when he surrendered to his enemies. And there are two distinct groups of people that Jesus encountered in this passage of Scripture. One was the group of people who arrested him, the guards and the others who formed the mob that took Jesus into custody. And then the second group of people were the religious authorities who put Jesus on trial. Each of them had an opportunity to treat God the Son, Christ, in whatever way they wanted. And the way that they treated God the Son, the way that they treated the Lord Jesus Christ, teaches us quite a bit about how God's enemies would treat him. And so let's look at this section together. Let's see how God was mistreated when he surrendered to his enemies. The first thing we'll see is in verses 63 through 65, that God the Son, Jesus Christ, was mocked and beaten by his guards. I've said to you that he was mistreated 
And part of that mistreatment was physical and verbal. He was mistreated. He was mocked and beaten by his guards. Look at verse 63 where the scripture says, the men who were guarding Jesus, and that's all Luke tells us about this group of people, but it's a safe presumption that this was the, the, the people who came to arrest Jesus, who were not part of the Sanhedrin, the ones who would stand in judgment over him. Jesus is being kept in this courtyard outside the high priest's home. And he is awaiting the break of day so that they could formally put him on trial. And while he's being held there, he's being guarded by these men who took him into custody. And we'll see that they don't just idly keep their eyes on Jesus or keep him secured. No, they take the opportunity to mistreat Jesus, to mock him and to beat him. Verse 63 says, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. And this describes, in general, their treatment of him. Then verse 64 goes into detail and tells us exactly how they were mocking and beating him. It says in verse 64, they blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? What we're to understand here is that as Jesus' hands were probably tied either in front of him or behind him, immobilized so that he could not fight back, someone took some kind of cloth and they covered his eyes so that he could not see. And although these men were not the religious leaders who would speak to Jesus soon, they were religious men. Many of them were temple guards, and of course they were Israelites. They had heard about Jesus, and they'd heard the claims about Jesus. They'd heard that many of the people believed him to be a prophet. And they'd heard that Jesus had made predictions about the future, both the immediate future and the future coming a long way from now. And so they use this opportunity while Christ is in their custody and while he's not being tried to make fun of his ability to be a prophet. The claims that were made about him knowing the future and being able to prophesy. And the way they did that was by covering his eyes and then each of them would take a turn hitting him, slapping him, beating him perhaps with their fists, and then asking him to identify which one of the many guards that were standing there was the one who actually slapped him or beat him or hit him with a fist. This is a a mockery of his uh, claim to have supernatural power. They demanded that he use the supernatural power that prophets have, to reveal and to identify the person who hit him. And verse 65 goes on to say this, and they said many other insulting things to him. And the word translated insulting there is the usual word for blasphemy. In other words, as they treated Jesus this way and as they mocked his ability to know who might be able to who was the person who was beating him without actually seeing who that person is as they called him to show and demonstrate his supernatural power by identifying which one of them assaulted him they were saying blasphemous things to him in other words they were mocking his claim to be the son of god his claim to have come from god and to reveal the father Their treatment of him reflected a deep kind of anger, a deep kind of rejection. And the point of the way that they treated him was to show him their unbelief. To show him that despite his teaching, despite his miracles, 
despite the prophecies that he had made that came true, they were not accepting any of it, nor were they accepting his claim to be a prophet or to be the Son of God or to be the Messiah. When God falls into the hands of his enemies, one thing they reveal about themselves and the way they treat him is their unbelief. He was mocked and beaten by his guards because they did not believe in him. Verses 66 through 71 move forward in the story, and they tell us that after Jesus, after this time of his being held in custody was finished, he was then taken for the first of three trials, three formal trials. This was a religious trial, and it was going to be done before the religious authorities in Israel. And their treatment of Jesus shows us even more about how the enemies of God would treat him. It shows us that his identity was questioned and rejected by the religious authorities. Look with me, please, at verse 66. The scripture says there, At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together. Now Luke hasn't told us everything that the other Gospels tell us about the time when Jesus was arrested and how those overnight hours between his arrest and between this part of the story in verse 66 were spent. But it seems clear from other Gospel accounts that there was sort of an informal trial at the home of the high priest. And then, because Jewish law required them to have a trial during the day, it was actually illegal to try Jesus at night, they waited until the sun came up And then they convened again to hold a formal trial, but the outcome was already predetermined. And the way Christ answers in this passage shows that he knows the outcome is predetermined. And so in verse 66, it says, at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people. And this is probably, almost certainly, a reference to what is called the Sanhedrin. This was the ultimate ruling authority in Israel. It was 70 of the religious leaders plus the high priests. And they were the highest court of appeal on all religious matters and many civil matters in Israel. Their decision held legal weight. And now they've convened together to put Jesus on trial. And verse 66 goes on to tell us a little bit more about who these people are. It says, at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, and then it gives us more specifics. It says, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and so these are both religious authorities in Israel. One of them controls the temple and the temple structure, and the other uh, has a related duty, but theirs is really just more to copy the scriptures and to explain the scriptures to people. Verse 66 says, they met together, and Jesus was led before him. And so this indicates the formal beginning of Jesus's religious trial. And although the other gospel accounts tell us that witnesses were brought forward to testify against Jesus, Luke streamlines the trial, the religious trial of Jesus. And in verse 67, it gives us a direct question. It gives us a direct question that Jesus was asked. It says in verse 67, if you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. As Jesus is formally charged or about to be formally charged, The leaders of this group, the Sanhedrin, want him to incriminate himself. They want Jesus to say, 
What they couldn't get the other witnesses to agree on, what they couldn't get the other witnesses to say. They want Jesus to say something incriminating. And they need something incriminating, not just for them, religiously speaking. They need something they can take to the Romans. Because although this group, the Sanhedrin, had tremendous power, their power was really a religious kind of power. They did not have the power to take human life, to execute people. And so they needed a charge that the Romans would agree was a capital offense. And this is why they asked Jesus, if you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Now, the word Messiah in the original Greek is the word Christ, the word Christos, where we get the English word Christ. And both of these words, Messiah and Christ, refer to the one that God promised would come and become the ruler over his people, would become the ultimate Davidic king. Many people, all the people in Israel, really, were waiting for the coming of the Messiah, and their hope was that the Messiah would overthrow the Romans and lead them back into a kingdom that was independent and powerful. And so if Jesus would admit to being the Messiah, if he would admit to claiming to be the Messiah, at least, then they could take him before the Romans and say, here's a man who has conspired and has um, determined to try to overthrow your government and make himself king. That would have been a capital offense under Roman law. And so that's the question. They are trying to get Jesus to admit that he thinks of himself as the Messiah so that they, they can then charge him with a capital offense before the Romans. Jesus answers in verse 67, If I tell you, you will not believe me. Now, we're, what we're going to see in the answers that Jesus gives in this part of the trial is that Jesus is evasive in the answers that he gives. And it's not because he was afraid of the questions that he was asking, nor was it that he thought he could get off the hook if he gave a non-answer answer. No, Jesus knows that the outcome has already been determined. He's already sat through an illegal but preliminary hearing with these people. He knows they're determined to put him to death. And that nothing he says will change that. And so Christ sort of refuses to cooperate with them because the outcome is determined. And he wants them to take responsibility for their antagonistic attitude toward him. And so in verse 67, when Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, he is saying, I'm not afraid of the question, but you're not asking the question sincerely. You're not looking to become my followers if I said I am Messiah. You're trying to put me on the hook. You're trying to get me to incriminate myself, and I'm not going to participate with your antics. Then he goes on in verse uh, 68 and says, and if I asked you, you would not answer. Now, this was an unusual thing to say, but remember that just a few days before, Jesus has been approached by this very group of people who tried to entrap him with a question and get him in trouble with the crowds. And when they asked him a question to try to entrap him, he asked them a question, and he said, is John the Baptist, was his baptism from heaven or from men? And this group of people said, we don't know the answer. They refused to answer. What Jesus is saying here is, you're not going to put yourselves on the hook, just like you did not want to say John the Baptist wasn't from God, nor did you want to say that he was from God. In the same way, you don't want to overtly reject me as Messiah, you just want to get me in trouble with the Roman authorities. And so he's saying, even if I asked you, you would dodge the question because you're not really interested in following God's Messiah. You're not really interested in knowing the truth about me. 
You're interested in removing me as a threat. And so these men questioned his identity as Messiah. And Jesus did not give them the answer that they wanted, but he gave them a much more powerful answer. In verse 69, Jesus said this, But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. This was a statement that was far more expansive and a much greater claim than the claim to be the Christ, the Messiah of God. In verse 69, when Jesus says, but from now on, he is saying shortly after this, after these days where you crucify me and put me to death, you are going to see me in power like you could not believe. He says, from now on, verse 69, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. The Son of Man was the term that Jesus used more often than any to refer to himself. And it was a term that had a strong Old Testament background. Ezekiel, one of God's prophets, was referred to by God over and over again in his prophecy as Son of Man. God speaks to him and says, Son of Man, do this or say that. And so calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus, may have been identifying with the prophecies and the prophet Ezekiel. And so this would put him sort of in a category very similar to the one the guards uh, put him in when they said, prophesy to us. But in the book of Daniel, the Bible describes the Son of Man coming in a much more powerful way, in a way that identifies him as someone who was going to establish the kingdom of God and someone who had the very attributes of God himself. And so when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, that alone wasn't enough for them to conclude that he was claiming to be God. But it certainly was a statement that brought up the thought that he might be claiming to be God. Well, Jesus eliminates no doubt. He eliminates all doubt about what he means when he goes on in verse 69 to say, And from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And you need to understand that in royalty, a king would sit on a throne and the most powerful person in his government would sit at his right side. Often it was his son, the prince who would become king once he passed away. And when Jesus says, the son of man, me, I will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God, he is making a claim much more powerful than the claim to be Messiah. The, the Jewish people did not understand that Messiah was going to be the Son of God until Jesus came along. But when Jesus said, the Son of Man, and you'll see me, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of God, now he's making a claim stronger than that he's the Messiah. He is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be who he very much was. And the idea of him being the Son of God doesn't mean that he is a descendant of God, like we would think of or that he was inferior to God. A son has his father's DNA. A son comes from his father. He has all of the same um, rights and all of the same attributes as his father. And so for someone to claim to be the son of God, that would be a blasphemous charge to Jewish religious leaders. And so when Jesus makes this statement in verse 69 and says, but from now on the son of man, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the mighty God. 
He is making a bold claim, a strong claim. And that claim was questioned by these religious authorities who were trying him. In verse 70, it says, They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? Now notice how in these verses, three titles of Jesus are all linked together. The Sanhedrin asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Christ? Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, and they conclude from his statement about the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God that he is the Son of God. These are the three um, most important titles of Jesus Christ that were either ascribed to him by himself or by others during his life on this earth. He is the Christ. He is the Son of Man. And he is the Son of God. And so these religious leaders are following what Jesus is saying. They understand that although he hasn't directly answered the question to be the Messiah, he is made an even stronger claim as far as they're concerned. He is claiming to be the Son of God. And so they asked him in verse 70, Are you then the Son of God? In verse 70, he replied, You say that I am. Now this again is an indirect way of answering the question. If somebody asked me, Are you the pastor of this church? I would usually say yes. But if I said, You said it, pal. I'm still saying yes, but not so directly. All right, And that's what Jesus does here. He admits to being the Son of God without directly saying yes. And his enemies get the point in verse 71. It says, Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Jesus said enough that those who put him on trial understood he was claiming to be the Christ. And in fact, even greater, to be the very Son of God. Because in the book of Psalms, the Bible describes the Messiah in these terms as the Son of God. But after they received this testimony from Christ himself, and after the years of watching his miracles and seeing him in action, all the proof they needed that he was indeed the Son of God was more than available to them. It was things that they had heard from direct testimony of others and things they had perhaps seen with their very own eyes. They had all the evidence they need that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that he was the Son of God, and yet they rejected him. When God falls into the hands of his enemies, They don't rationally evaluate the evidence for him. And they don't deeply consider the reverence that he deserves. Instead, they just reject him. The enemies of God reject him when he claims to have authority, especially if they are religious authorities who are in fact enemies of God. Now it seems weird to think that religious authorities could actually be the enemies of God. But that's exactly what was faced in this passage. These men were religious authorities because they held positions of religious power. But in their hearts, they had rejected the word of God. They had rejected the grace of God and the gospel of God that was offered to them in Christ. And when God the Son was in their hands and they could treat him any way they wanted to, 
They mistreated him and rejected everything he had to say. Jesus predicted this. In John chapter 15, verses 22 through 25, the scripture says, Jesus said, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. When God's enemies have a chance to evaluate his claims, to see his great power, and to accept or reject him, their verdict is rejection. And we see that in the very religious authorities who put Jesus on trial. And so it is today. The enemies of God did not pass away when these men passed away from this earth. Instead, the Bible says there are many people who claim to want to know God, claim to be interested in God, claim to love God, and yet when they are confronted with the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, they reject him. And in so doing, they mistreat him when they have the chance. And so the big idea for this message then, the thing we should take away from the message for today is this. Because we're God's enemies, we need his grace to believe him instead of mistreating him. God's enemies mistreat him when they have the chance. And what we're going to see in a second is this. All of us are really the enemies of God by nature. We come into this world as enemies of God. The Bible says our natural state is not to be neutral toward God and throughout life to either decide based on the truth that we hear about him or the evidence whether to accept or reject him. No, the Bible says our natural inclination is that we come into this world as the enemies of God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, the scripture says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, even though these men were religious, they were enemies of God. And they showed it in the way that they treated God, the Son, Jesus Christ. And the truth of the matter is that in our natural state, every single one of us mistreats God by the way we mishandle his word, the way we try to suppress the truth, the way that we try to excuse our own sin and get out from under the accountability that we have before God. We all come into this world as enemies of God. And because of that, the Bible says this, we are unable to receive God in Christ without his grace. Only the power of God and the grace of God can remove the hostility of the human heart toward God so that we can receive him and believe him and follow him. And we see this in many passages, but here's one of them. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The person without the Spirit, all right, in the original language, this means the natural man. It means man in his natural state, humanity, as we are by nature. The natural person does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. Just like the guards did when they mocked Jesus for being a prophet. And just like the Sanhedrin did when he called himself the Son of Man and said he would sit at the right hand of God and agreed with their claim that he was God. They thought it was foolishness, and all of us do. All of us in our natural state 
We do not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but we consider them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The Bible says it takes a supernatural act of God to remove our hostility toward Jesus Christ so that we can receive him. And that was missing from these enemies. It wasn't that Jesus' claims were unclear. It wasn't that they were without evidence. Jesus gave more evidence than anyone ever would need that he was the Son of God. The problem is, the human heart can't accept that apart from the grace of God. And so we come into this world as enemies of God, and we're unable to receive God in Christ without his grace. And this is why we need the gospel and the Spirit of God, because only when God enlightens us through the gospel do we turn from being God's enemies to becoming believers in him. It takes the supernatural grace of God through the gospel to change our hearts so that we receive Jesus. Now, I already showed you this verse a minute ago. Colossians 1.21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But the next verse, the next two verses say this, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. One of the reasons why Jesus came into this earth and one of the reasons why he surrendered to his enemies is so that they would hang him on the cross. And although they viewed hanging him on the cross as a victory, a a way of defeating this man who claimed to be God, what they were doing instead was securing the, the, the spiritual victory of God over human sin. It is through the death of Christ and through the hope that is given to us in the gospel message that we are able to turn from our hostility to Christ and stop being his enemies and instead to welcome him by faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we consider what it means to be a follower of Christ. And first of all, let me just say this. If this has never happened to you, if you've never come to the place in your life where you've turned from your hostility toward God and your unbelief in him and instead received Jesus as your savior, let me welcome you to faith in Jesus Christ. Let Let me urge you to turn from your sin and receive the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ through the gospel. But if it's so clear that Jesus is who he says he was. And if Jesus is, is so powerful that he's sitting at the right hand of God, then why is there so much hostility against him? Why is it that when believers go out into the world and preach the gospel and make other believers and do good in the world, they, believers don't take up arms against the state. Believers don't do violent things toward one another. And so why is there in other places especially so much animosity toward God? Why is there so much unbelief? Why are so many people enemies of God? Why do they continue to mistreat him? The answer is because they need the grace of God. And so those of us who are followers of God, we should adjust our expectations. And so we should expect mistreatment from God's enemies, but we should pray for God's mercy to save them. See, We need to keep this in mind. Just as Christ expected his enemies to reject him and crucify him, and yet he held out and said to God the Father, 
Forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. And he held out to them the hope of forgiveness in the gospel. So we as the followers of Jesus Christ need to, on one hand, expect mistreatment because we're Jesus followers. But on the other hand, know that God is going to save some, even some who mistreat us for our faith in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21, and by the way, Jesus said these words right before he entered the Garden of Gethsemane. Right before he was arrested, he was teaching the disciples and he taught them this. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Why is there so much hostility toward Christians and toward the gospel? It's because... The world is in its natural state, and in the natural state, it's hostile to God. It hates God. It would crush God if it had the opportunity to take him out. And we see that in the way that Jesus was mistreated. But as God's enemies, we don't fight back when Christ is rejected. We don't fight back when we are mistreated for the gospel. Instead, we need to ask for God's mercy upon all upon everyone, even those who reject the gospel message. And the Bible's teaching is that God is merciful to many of his enemies. And this is embodied very much in the person we call the Apostle Paul, someone who just a few short years after Christ became an intense persecutor of his church, and yet God revealed himself to him. Christ appeared to him and revealed himself and called Paul to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul wrote these words about that experience. In 1 Timothy 1, 13-16, he said, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. When God was in the hands of angry sinners, he didn't stand a chance. But when sinners are in the hands of an angry God, the possibility of mercy is available through Jesus Christ. And so, in our natural state, we are enemies of God. And because we're God's enemies, we need his grace to believe him instead of mistreating him. Most of you who are watching this, who are part of our church family, have found that grace already. You've found salvation in Jesus Christ. You've moved out of the category of being an enemy of God into being a follower, a lover, a believer in Jesus Christ. But maybe you haven't. Maybe you still need to be saved. Let me urge you to receive the mercy of God in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. And for all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, let's take the example of Christ and learn what we should expect. This world is hostile toward us as Christians because it's hostile toward God, 
who saved us. And so we should expect that hostility and we should be prepared for it while at the same time holding out the mercy of God and the gospel to those around us. Because we're God's enemies, we need his grace to believe him instead of mistreating him. Let's receive the grace of God in Christ and hold out that grace to others in his name.